It's Friday, October 14th. I'm Pam Jones. As Election Day nears, Baltimore County elections officials say they'll add an additional day to count mail-in ballots ahead of November 8th. While statewide Democrats enjoy commanding leads in their races, the race for the top job in Anne Arundel County is neck and neck. Governor Hogan has announced $15 million in federal aid will go toward hiring for infrastructure work. And a new study finds aircraft noise from BWI Air may be doing more health damage than previously thought. We'll have those stories and more. Plus, we'll hear from our executive editor of The Daily Dose and our general manager and CEO as they reflect on some of the highlights and bid a warm farewell to the podcast. No, it's not going away forever, just taking a hiatus. I'll have more details coming up, but first... It's the Daily Dose from WYPR, our latest reporting on Maryland's COVID-19 response and the local news of the day, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Baltimore County elections officials today added a third day of counting mail-in ballots before Election Day. WYPR's John Lee reports County Executive Johnny Olczewski says he wants as many mail-in votes counted in advance as possible, so there are no extended delays in getting final results after November 8th. County elections officials have been scrambling since a court decision last week gave them the green light to count the ballots ahead of time. But now they've made arrangements to begin counting ballots on October 24th, as well as November 5th and 6th. County Executive Oshevsky says the goal is to count all received mail-in and drop box ballots by Election Day. In the absence of that, we're going to do everything that we can, given the limitations the board faces, to ensure that as many ballots as possible are counted in advance so that we have a lot more clarity or at least as much clarity as we can possibly have in the outcome of this election. Localities are handling this differently. For instance, Frederick County plans to start counting mail-ins on Monday. John Lee, WIPR News. The Maryland Department of Health has backed off efforts to approve two contracts for private health care services without routine oversight by the Board of Public Works. But as WYPR's Rachel Bay reports, the agency is still moving forward with plans to effectively close a state hospital in Hagerstown. The contracts, each worth tens of millions of dollars, would cause all 43 current patients to be transferred to other facilities. Most need nursing home type care. During Wednesday's Board of Public Works meeting, Health Secretary Dennis Schrader highlighted the hospital's aging infrastructure. Our boiler is a World War II vintage boiler that requires an operating engineer. And when we need parts, we have to actually have the parts manufactured one off. If that were to go bad during the winter, we'd have to evacuate these patients. The proposed contracts to privatize the hospital's brain injury and long-term care programs could come before BPW for approval as early as late November. Rachel Bay, WYPR News. Governor Larry Hogan said today he will use $15 million in federal money to help local companies hire workers for infrastructure projects. WYPR's Joel McCord has more. The new Jobs That Build program grants companies up to $10,000 per employee to be used for housing, transportation, or child care costs, or for signing and retention bonuses. Hogan said it would jumpstart state and local infrastructure projects. We expect that this will help bring on thousands of construction workers and ensure that more capital projects 
are delivered on time and on budget. State Labor Secretary Tiffany Robinson said it would get talented workers off the sidelines. When we incentivize the worker and knock out the barriers, we will not only have a more robust economy, but we will also have the most modern and advanced infrastructure in the country. The largest companies would get up to half a million dollars. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. The University of Maryland Medical System recently approved a plan that will build a flagship medical campus in the Midshore region. WIPR's health reporter Scott Massioni has more. The five rural counties making up Maryland's Midshore may have a substantial medical center providing health services by mid-2028. The University of Maryland Medical System is planning a 325,000-square-foot hospital with an additional 60,000 square feet of medical offices in Easton. Ken Kozell, president and CEO of University of Maryland Shore Regional Health, says the facility will provide advanced care to residents in a 2,000-square-mile area. We'll get that high-level inpatient care in areas like obstetrics where you will deliver your baby in the hospital there. Or if you've got a stroke or cardiology issues or cancer issues. UM Shore Regional Health will submit its plan to the Maryland Healthcare Commission in January. There's still no cost estimate for the facility, but if it's approved, the medical center will be built with public and private funds. Scott Massioni, WIPR News. The CDC has now expanded the COVID-19 booster shot to include children. Scott has more on that story. In a world where coronavirus is the new reality, it's more than just sniffles that parents have to worry about. The Centers for Disease Control approved COVID booster shots for children ages 5 to 11 earlier this week. However, Della Leister, Baltimore County's deputy health officer, says Maryland parents will need to wait a little bit before their kids can get the booster. We do not have the new vaccine yet, but when we get it, we will not change anything. We will offer all formulations at our public clinics. Leister says they're hoping to make shots available in the next couple days. Dr. Andrea Berry, a pediatric infectious disease specialist at the University of Maryland School of Medicine, says it's imperative kids get the shot. Shots help to prevent kids from going to the hospital and being very ill, but also help keep them in school. And next week, Baltimore County will begin running mobile flu shot clinics throughout the county. John Lee reports local officials say they're trying to combat a dip in the number of people getting the flu vaccine. County Executive Johnny Oshevsky rolled up his sleeve Thursday for the flu shot. I'm smiling under this mask, y'all, I promise. <laughs> Health officials say they're not sure why they're seeing a decline in flu shot vaccinations, but Oshevsky has a theory. Coming out of the worst of the pandemic, uh, I think for many people, it's sort of a let your guard down sort of thing. And Deputy Health Officer Della Leister says they're trying to fix that. We're working really hard to figure out what the barriers are for people getting their flu vaccine so we can up those numbers. From October 22nd through the 27th, the county will be holding mobile flu clinics. You can find out when and where they'll be at WYPR.org. John Lee, WYPR News. The Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center reports as of today, there have been 1,258,000 confirmed COVID-19 cases in the state since the beginning of 2020. More than 15,000 Marylanders have died of causes related to the virus, and nearly 80 percent of Marylanders are fully vaccinated. Some Anne Arundel County school bus routes that have been out of service this year will return to operation on Monday. Schools Superintendent Dr. Mark Bedell says seven routes will offer morning and afternoon service. Five of Baltimore's oldest schools will be renovated in coming years. Baltimore City Public Schools CEO Dr. Sonia Santelisis announced the plan at a news conference on Thursday. WIPR's education reporter Shakana Collier has that story. 
Santalisa said Baltimore City College, Baltimore Polytech Institute, which shares a campus with Western High School, and Frederick Douglass High School will undergo renovations. After the remodel, Joseph C. Briscoe Academy will share a building with Douglass. Santalisa said the project costs $400 million and is partially funded by Maryland's Build to Learn Act. Structural improvements to these large, older buildings are significantly more expensive than renovations in buildings serving the lower grades. And we would not be able to get this critically important job done without these additional funds being provided. Students will move into temporary spaces starting in 2024 when construction begins. Shekinah Collier, WIPR News. The weather should be near perfect tomorrow with highs in the mid-70s for the 21st annual Baltimore Running Festival. Races include a marathon, half marathon, 10K, and 5K. An estimated 11,000 runners will be fanning out through the city and traffic in many neighborhoods will come to a halt. The race returned to near normal last year after a design-your-own virtual race in 2020. For full information, visit thebaltimoremarathon.com. While statewide Democrats enjoy commanding polling leads in their races, Stuart Pittman, Anne Arundel County's incumbent Democratic County Executive, is locked in a too-close-to-call race with first-term Republican County Council member Jessica Hare. WYPR's Joel McCord has more. Dan Nataf, who runs the Center for the Study of Local Issues at Anne Arundel Community College, calls this race the reverse of one four years ago. Then Pittman, in his first run for office, pulled out a close victory despite the commanding lead held by incumbent Republican Governor Larry Hogan at the top of the statewide ticket. Now, the Democrat at the top of the statewide ticket holds an unassailable polling lead against his Republican challenger. Nataf wonders what this means for the tight race between Pittman and Hare. The question is, from my point of view, is that you're going to have uh, a kind of reliable Republican turnout in a, in a hard-to-anticipate level of enthusiasm, motivation on the Democratic side. Nataf questioned whether Democratic voters would see this as an opportunity to send a message to MAGA Republicans and come out in droves. Or or just another midterm election. You're helping me celebrate. For her part, Hare, who was courting voters at a recent Republican meet and greet, avoids the Trumpian MAGA culture war issues to focus on school buses, taxes, and public safety. Local government is where we make sure your trash gets picked up on time, your kids get to school on buses on time. Um, you know, we're making sure that your taxes are as low as possible so you can keep your hard-earned money. She blamed Pittman in a press release for failing to solve the school bus driver shortage, citing a recent Annapolis Capitol report that county students had missed more than 3,100 days of school this year because of the lack of drivers. Yet Pittman says he pushed a $5 an hour raise as well as signing and retention bonuses for drivers. I, I, I could just say that it would be a whole lot worse had we not got that $5 an hour increase that all of the bus driving companies had asked for and the drivers um, that she voted against doing. Hare countered that leadership involves more than throwing money at a problem. Really what he needed to do was partner with the board and the superintendent to do things um, like work on rolling outages or um, 
find alternative means like vans for shorter routes. The day after she issued that press release, newly installed county school superintendent Mark Bedell announced a series of changes to increase service. Pittman said his workforce development office had been working with school officials to ease the problem and that he had personally lobbied the school board. And that's the outside, bo outside the box thinking that you know, I've been pushing for for a year. We've got a superintendent re ready to work with us. And what we don't need is people making political hay out of a community crisis. In his first year in office, Pittman raised the county's piggyback income tax and property tax rates. He says it was necessary to catch up with the county's burgeoning growth to give police, firefighters, and teachers raises. Hare says he's blowing a lot of smoke and promise to cut taxes. And the reason I say that is he talks about adding police officers. Do you know he only added 18 sworn officers to the budget over the last four years? 18. The prior administration added 54 and they did it without raising taxes. A county police spokesman says there were 725 officers on the force the year before Pittman took office. Now there are 756. Pittman says the tax increases led to a budget surplus, a reduction in taxes, and provided the money to give police, firefighters, and teachers raises to keep them from fleeing to other counties. Well, she says she's going she's gonna to cut the taxes so much that she won't be able to afford the police. So they're all wondering who gets the pink slip. He notes the police, firefighters, and teachers unions all have endorsed him. I'm Joel McCord, WYPR News. Aircraft noise from BWI Airport may be doing more damage than previously thought, possibly to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. WIPR's health reporter Scott Massioni gives us the story. Here we go with a helicopter. Lord Donovan's lived in the same house in Glen Burnie for the past 52 years. That was not bad. See, if they were all like that, I wouldn't have a problem. Driving by car, she's 2.7 miles door-to-door -door from BWI Airport. And if you look at the sky above her roof, condensation trails from airplanes streak directly overhead. It looks like Argyle socks here at night. It's just seriously, they're just like everywhere. Donovan says the noise from the aircraft coming from BWI has gotten worse over the years to the point where it affects her sleep and it's taking a toll on her health. Okay, in a nutshell, let's see. Sleep deprivation, stupidity. My weight is fluctuating all over the place. Your sleep pattern's off, your eating patterns are off, there's no schedule. A new study from the University of Maryland School of Pharmacy says there's a hefty monetary burden associated with the health impacts caused by noise from BWI. Assistant Professor Zafar Zafari says those health effects come in many forms like anxiety, sleep issues, cardiovascular problems, and low birth weight in children. The study finds that over the next 30 years, the medical economic burden caused by the noise around BWI will cost $800 million. Zafari said those costs were calculated in two ways. The monetary estimates are including direct medical costs of these conditions, which includes pharmacy, outpatient visits, doctor visits, emergency room visits, and hospitalization. Zafari also added in indirect costs. For example, if someone has a cardiovascular incident and needs to go to the hospital, they'll end up missing work. Or if a family member needs to bring someone to the doctor, they'll need to take time away from their job. Many of the issues regarding flight noise were exacerbated around 2012. That's when BWI started using the next-gen air transportation system. It concentrates flight paths in certain areas, routing hundreds of flights at low altitude over the same neighborhoods in a day, especially in Anne Arundel and Howard counties. 
However, the Federal Aviation Administration says the new technologies better manage air traffic, making flights safer and more efficient. There's a group of citizens working with the Maryland Aviation Administration on noise mitigation strategies. Debbie McDonald, chair of the D.C. Metroplex BWI Community Roundtable, says next-gen affects significant areas of Maryland. There are some communities that are getting thousands of planes flying at a fairly low altitude. And these are not communities that are next to the airport. These are communities that are 8, 10, 15 miles from the airport that are getting repeated noise events over their homes. You know, someone here says it's a, it's a superhighway in the sky. The board's taking particular interest in Zafari's study as it pushes for more information and for noise mitigation measures. Jesse Chancellor, one of the board members, says the study highlights the need for change. There needs to be a public health intervention. Now you have to balance the tremendous economic benefit this airport is to the entire region, job, access, everything we all value here against the public health. But I think you can't ignore one for the other. And the tendency is to ignore public health side in favor of the economic argument. In a statement to WYPR, BWI says it's still reviewing the report and is committed to being a good neighbor. In July, Maryland secured $4 million in federal funds to mitigate noise caused by next-gen flight paths around BWI. Meanwhile, Laura Donovan says she's going to keep an eye out and keep making her voice heard at public meetings until something changes. I don't want to go sit in a room and complain. I want to go see my family. I want to go do anything. I want to go to sleep. I don't want to go sit in that room, but nobody else is. Scott Massioni, WYPR News. Well, it's hard to believe our first production of The Daily Dose was back in March of 2020. It was conceived as a tool to get the latest information on this new deadly and contagious virus the world was just learning about delivered to you in a calm, cohesive manner. It was a roundup of the most insightful reporting from the WIPR news team as the public radio audience had come to expect. Back then, we all thought maybe we would need to produce this podcast for just three, maybe six months. Well, those early days were frightening, and we hung on to every changing and hopeful word from national and state health officials, like Maryland's Deputy Secretary of Health, Fran Phillips. When this crisis is over, and one day it will be over, we will look back at this time in our lives as a particularly extraordinary moment. When we look back, we have to be able to say that we did everything we could to save lives. That seems like so long ago. As I mentioned earlier, the idea to start the Daily Dose more than two and a half years ago grew out of a discussion between LaFontaine Oliver, our CEO and general manager, and Danielle Irby, the executive editor of this podcast. They simply wanted to meet the demand for the day's most up-to-date information on the coronavirus, as only public radio can, without the feeling it was being delivered through a fire hose. Listening to that brings back memories of a frightening and confusing time. LaFontaine, do you remember the day the entire staff sat in the conference room and watched on the giant screen as Governor Hogan announced that all schools would be closing? And then that was followed by a curfew for non-essential personnel to be off the streets by 8 p.m. And essentially, for all of us, our whole world was uh, turned upside down. I remember that day very well. Um, I remember uh, feeling both... um, confused um, and 
Um, also worried about how we were going to um, continue to be able to serve our audience um, while keeping our staff safe during this time where there was a lot of uh, unknowns about COVID and what exactly we were dealing with. Um, But yes, I remember that day very clearly. Yeah, it seems like in some ways, it seems like a very, very long time ago, but then two and a half years, when you look at it going on three years, is really not a lot of time, but it was a lot to deal with what we've been dealing with. So do you recall our lunch conversation where you talked about uh, meeting the needs of our audience? Can you talk a little bit about those early days and what uh, your desire for this podcast was at the time? Yeah, so I remember that lunch very well also because... Um, I really felt compelled in those early days to figure out a way for um, the station to be able to provide um, critical, um, nuanced, well-researched information to our community at a time where there was just so much just kind of flying around about what we were dealing with. And I remember sort of thinking about um, sort of the mandate that we all have as broadcasters to to act in the interest and necessity of our community. And and the interest and necessity was deliver life-saving information um, to your community um, as often as you can and in as many different forms as you can so that you reach the audience. And we sort of hatched the idea uh, together there to to launch the, the podcast. So uh, here we are nearing year three of the Daily Dose of this podcast, and COVID is still with us. Uh, Life has, for the most part, returned to a so-called new normal, and uh, we have to acknowledge all the lives lost and those still sick and uh, an untold number of people still uh, dealing with long COVID. But we are closing the chapter of the Daily Dose, as we uh, get to work on a new concept with our partners, the Baltimore Banner. So can you share a little bit about that? Yeah, so I will back up and just say that um, um, somehow I I felt um, early on that uh, the concept of the Daily Dose and the work um, that you and the the news team and our our, our, um, show host and programming teams um, put together would be something that um, would um, um, would last beyond COVID, and and so as the um, the pandemic uh, continued to sort of change how we lived, um, the the way that the podcast was made started to change, and so it started to become more of a, a news wrap up, and there were um, uh, different segments that weren't necessarily about COVID, but I like to say we, we, we built some new muscles. We learned some new tricks. We learned um, how to stand up a daily podcast. And so um, I think I secretly always hoped that um, even when um, we were able to realize a time where, where um, COVID was no longer with us, that we would continue to use those muscles. And so what I'm excited about is that uh, this isn't um, goodbye to to the daily dose, but rather an opportunity for us to take a step back and to um, reimagine and redesign it um, with our partners at the Baltimore Banner to come up with, uh, create and launch something that will um, continue to serve the unique needs of this community um, with those skills and muscles that we, we, we've we learned and developed uh, over time. And so um, 
you know, the banner um, had some really uh, talented uh, reporters and editors. Um, we obviously have uh, a talented staff here, and I think what we're going to be able to uh, produce uh, together um, is is likely going to be stronger than anything that um, the two organizations would do on their own. And so I'm excited about bringing the the uh, the two together to uh, uh, reimagine this as. Uh, uh, another public service vehicle um, for informing the uh, the folks in our community. And I should note that uh, some of our reporters, our reporting team here at WYPR is already collaborating and producing some great content with their uh, partners at the Baltimore Banner. So as we say in this business, stay tuned. So I want to thank you, LaFontaine, for entrusting me with uh, leading this vital information tool for our audience, the WYPR reporting team for all of their contributions, our many guests and my three hosts, all the show producers and show hosts. And uh, I've had three hosts and we're ending with uh, Pam Jones, who I also want to give a big thank you to. Yeah. And Danielle, I'd be remiss if if I didn't uh, take a moment to thank you for sort of answering the call to to take on this this new project um, and to really pour yourself into it and and um, to dedicate countless hours um, every day, especially during the height of the pandemic when you know we were um, publishing five days a week, um, all of the writing, all of the editing, all of the sort of calling together you know materials from uh, from our shows. Um, thank you for for taking that on. Um, our our team is better for it. Um, our station is better for it, and I think our community is better for it. Well, again, thank you. And on behalf of everyone here at WYPR, I'd like to thank you for listening to The Daily Dose since its inception in March of 2020. We've come a long way together, so we'll leave you as we began with the voices that matter most, yours. My name's Greg. I'm a New York City-based jazz drummer. I'm currently staying, um, actually sheltering in place, really, in beautiful Queen Anne's County at the home of my elderly mother. Well, I've been through this virus, and I came out the other side, and I'm still alive, but just barely, because it was absolutely horrible to go through. The body aches and the fever. And the Hi, this is Jim. I'm a WYPR listener, and uh, what's changed in my life? Unfortunately, I cannot get to see my mother on a weekly basis because she's in a nursing home. However, the silver lining is... My one son, who lives in Boston, is now in Baltimore. Uh, this is Soto Voce, also known as Donna Pia Voce. I am a licensed, certified clinical hypnotist, and I'm now offering anyone who's interested in a brief recorded induction for stress reduction during this time especially. Most scientists, if not all scientists, have acknowledged that COVID is going to be here with us, meaning that SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes this coronavirus, is endemic. It is going to be with us for the foreseeable future, probably for generations to come. And if that's the case, by definition, it no longer is a pandemic. The Daily Dose is brought to you by WYPR, made possible by GBMC Healthcare. Many thanks to my news team colleagues, Rachel Bay, Shekinah Collier, John Lee, Scott Massioni, 
Joel McCord, Kristen Mossbrucker, and Bethany Raja. The executive editor of The Daily Dose is Danielle Irby. If you have a scoop or suggestion for this podcast, my social media hangout is Twitter at That's Pam Jones. Remember to be courageous and stay curious. I'm Pam Jones. Thanks for listening.